Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. We are, boy, it is clipping along. I just looked down to double check my notes. We are, in fact, on our 19th episode of season two. Holy mackerel, Andy. How many many episodes in season two? There's 24 episodes in season one and 24 in season two to go with uh, appearing twice a month. I like Um, when that that sort of all mathematically works out that way. We've got a great episode this time with someone who I was delighted that we got to meet at Sunday Night Magic and then was again delighted to talk with him via Zoom, uh, John Lovick, otherwise known as Handsome Jack. Uh, The male model magician. He is so good on stage. He was so insightful as we talked to him in this interview. And I had just a great time chatting with him. Although you're going to hear in the interview, I differ a little bit on philosophy with him in terms of how to best approach somebody. But you can't argue with the fact that he is a brilliant magician and a director and a writer. And uh, all of those things are true. Yep. And he's a perfect fit for our How to Build a Better Magician theme, because he did build a better magician by the name of Handsome Jack. And the way he did that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, But before we dove into that, we asked the standard question of John, how how did he get into the world of magic? It's perfect having you on the show at this juncture. We're in season two, and a lot of what season two has been about is the theme of how to build a better magician. We don't normally do a, a deep dive background thing, but like our first guest in season one, Rob Zabrecki, like Rob, you came to magic a little bit later. How did that happen for you? Well, I grew up in a tiny little town in Montana where there was no real way to learn magic. There were no magicians around. I don't know that I knew there was such a thing as a magic shop. Well, I guess I did know um, that like, you know, cities like New York had magic shops, but I never saw a magic shop and never saw, for the most part, never got an opportunity to see magic live. So I was interested in my whole life, but no way to like really learn or meet other magicians. And so after graduate school, um, I was, uh, I I went to graduate school in Seattle, went to the University of Washington, and they had a couple of magic shops there. So I started going to those magic shops and started buying magic books and then hanging out with the magicians and sort of fell really, really hard into the hobby. I met some, you know, really great magicians there and they sort of took me under their wing. And um, I just, I just, you know, got obsessed very quickly. A couple of years later, I moved to L.A. and that's when I started going to the Magic Castle. And over the course of the next decade or so, uh, this hobby uh, took over my life, basically, is what happened. What did you um, what, what did you go to graduate school for? What I got my uh, MFA in uh, theater directing. Ah, well, that's a good thing. Theater directing. That's probably going to rear its head somewhere <laughs> during this interview, oh, would be my guess. That'll pop up in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, John, how does a, a performer magician find their uh, persona, if you will? I mean, yours is is so unique, at least in terms of what I have seen. And I think I've seen, you know, my fair share of magicians. Uh, How did you find Handsome Jack? Well, I would say uh, there were two questions there. One was how did, you know, how did I find Handsome Jack and how should or do performers find their personas, which are sort of the same question, but kind of different because my advice would be don't do it the way I did it. 
and sort of do it exactly how I did it. Um, <laughs> and, and by that, I mean the, the part that other people, that is useful to other people, is the fact that my persona came about because I paid attention to how the audience was responding to my you know, early magic performances. And I really noticed what kinds of tricks and what kinds of jokes, et cetera, worked and hit and what kinds didn't. And so I pursued that. I've seen you know, many magicians who just do what they do. Doesn't matter if it works or not, they just keep doing it because you know, that's what is in their head that they should do. So the story about Handsome Jack is, like I said, magic was my hobby and I was hanging out at the castle and becoming friends with magicians. And we were all youngish in our 20s and 30s. And this group that I was hanging out with, they were, most of them were at a, a stage where they were just starting to get booked to perform at the castle and just starting to do their first, you know, serious and real professional gigs. And I noticed like, hey, wait a second, after a year or two, all my friends were performing at the castle and I wasn't. So I thought I would put together an act for the parlor and uh, spend a year working on it. And if it was, if I felt it was, you know, good enough at the end of the year, I would audition. And so I had an idea for an act where I would be a sort of not incompetent, but um, I guess the, 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 you know, Yiddish word would be nebishy. This guy who magic stuff is happening, but it's not magic that I was in control of. For example, like like the eleven dollar the eleven dollar trick or the eleven card trick, where you keep counting cards and the number of cards or, or bills if you use money keeps changing, but it's not changing because of anything you're doing. It just it's happening impossibly, but mysteriously, and you don't know. And I had an idea to do that, and a thing like I was going to use slight slight any silks in a way that I was going to do a cards across routine, and I was going to say we need a a bridge between the two of you for the cards to go across. And so that I would take two handkerchiefs and tie them together and have each of them hold an end. But then the, the handkerchief, the knot would keep dissolving and I tie it again, it would keep dissolving. So again, it's magical, but it's not magic I was in, in control of. So that was gonna be the whole act. Lots of very magical things, none of which I intended. And one of the tricks was one where I sort of rigged up a, a, a contest where a spectator could win a prize. And then I revealed to the audience that the, that the, the game, the lotto was rigged and the prize was a date with Mr. Magic. I, and I would always pick uh, you know, a, an attractive woman from the audience to win the prize, but we didn't know the prize was a date with Mr. Magic and we didn't know yet that the game was rigged. So that was the trick that played the best in those early shows of mine. Uh, and I thought, okay, what, trick isn't working well. And so the trick that was playing the least well, I dropped and I thought, what's a trick that could go well with this win a date with Mr. Magic? And so I picked another trick that I thought would play well with it. And I sort of repeated that process over the course of the year. I'd say, what's the weakest thing in the act? So I dropped it. What could go well with the things that are working on? And so by the end of the year, all of a sudden it, I had morphed into handsome Jack, male model magician. And if you had told me at the beginning of the year, that's what I'd be doing, I would have said, you're out of your mind. I would say, there's no way I would be doing that. That sounds so stupid. That's not my kind of comedy. It's not the kind of th thing we're doing. It's almost the opposite of what I intended. But, you know, there we were at the end of the year. And here I am 25 years later. 
Well, but like you said, you know, you were listening to the audience, which uh, a lot of magicians don't do. So at this point in, in your timeline, you know, it's magic is a hobby. You're, you're getting better at it. What are you doing to make a living? Well, I was mostly working in, I worked in film, TV, theater, and radio for, you know, 15, 20 years doing just about every job uh, you can name in, in all those mediums. I mostly, I mostly stage managed theater, but I also did some acting. I also did directing. I also did, you know, many different uh, roles in film from the camera, uh, camera department to uh, assistant director, uh, to props. I also, I worked as a, a Foley artist and did sound effects on the radio. I did lots of things. Mostly theater, mostly stage managing, because that's stage managing is the one job in theater where it's easiest to get a job that pays money. You know, you can you can you can begin when you're starting out, and uh, you can begin plays and you can direct plays, but getting paid to do them is rare. But every show needs a stage manager, and nobody wants to do it, so it's often easy to get paid. and And I was and I was also in in in, in Actors Equity. Uh, which is the union that covers not just actors, but also stage managers. So I was able to do professional uh, work, including, including on, you know, on Broadway. So that's what I did mostly. At, at what point did you kind of start directing magicians? Uh, how did that come about? Well, that came about because I'm a big know-it-all. And when, when I started hanging out at, at the castle and was making friends with magicians, we were all working on stuff. I was the guy who would tell people that looks like shit. Uh, and, you know, that's a terrible idea. Why don't you do it like this? And, and it took me a while to realize that problems in other people's acts weren't my problem. I would just see things that were not successful and think that I had the solution and feel compelled to tell people. Thankfully, I got over that. But I got, sort of got a reputation for being kind of brutal and find it kind of honest, and also having good advice for people. So I became sort of a guy that people would come to for advice and say, I was working on something, would you watch it and let me know what you think? Uh, And that went for individual tricks to, you know, routines or acts or, you know, complete shows. And over time, you know, I did more and more of of that kind of work. You know, one of my, uh, I wouldn't say fondest memories of you, but one that really gave me a sense of who you were as I was learning about magicians, because I'm not a magician, but I, I was writing a series of novels about a magician and I had to do a lot of deep dive studying so I could talk smart. And there was a post that you made probably was on Facebook or somewhere where I could see it, where uh, you'd copy a page out of a book. I forget who the magician was. He'd written a book about his touring life or something. And on the page, there was a description he said about how he came out of his show one night and this man came up to him in the lobby and sort of brutally told him everything that was wrong with the show and then went away. And your note on it was, I have a feeling that was me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But... That raises an important point, because one thing that uh, I keep hearing again and again from people talking about, at least magicians on the amateur level, is you go to the magic club, you show your pals a new trick, they tell you that's great, you move on, and no one is being particularly honest. And it seems like it's a it's a rare commodity that's that's worth harvesting is honesty when it comes to what people are actually doing on stage. And that's, you know, I, I imagine over the years, you found a way to soften things a little bit. But that's, I think, why people would seek you out is 
you're going to get the truth. Yeah. Well, you know, that reminds me of two things. One is I've got a follow up to that story. Uh, that's uh, actually a very recent edition of that story. So that book you referenced is a, a book by Nate Staniforth called, uh, I think it's called This Is Real Magic. Yeah. And it was a memoir of his, you know, becoming a magician and learning about magic. And someone showed me that passage and said, this sounds like you. And I had no memory of seeing that show, having that conversation or talking to Nate Staniforth. But I went, boy, yeah, that does sound like sound like me because then it wasn't just this is what's wrong with your show it's also did you do any advertising and he said you know i put some postcards in a few coffee shops and i said well then you shouldn't be surprised there were 12 people here and so so i'd wondered over the years whether that was me and i was just at magic live and nate staniforth was there who i believe you know i'd never met and so he was there and he was giving a talk so I went to the room where he's giving a talk and he was standing at the back of the room before his lecture began. And I walked up to him and just kind of as a test to see if that was me, I said, hey, Nate, nice to see you again. Because as far as I know, I'd never met him before. I said, hey, Nate, nice to see you again, just to see how he would respond to that. He goes, hey, you did a great thing for me. And I said, oh, what's that? And he goes, when I was in LA, you saw my show and you said, look, you should get out of LA, you should go back home and you should do a thousand shows. Now, after you've done a thousand shows, then if you want to, you can come back to LA or go to wherever you want. He goes, that's exactly what I did. And it made all the difference. So yes, that was me in that book. That unflattering portrait was me. Yes. And, and that's what happened. And so, so he said that, you know, my advice actually was, was, was useful to him. I, I would argue with the term unflattering. Okay. Here in Minnesota, we have Minnesota nice, and that would be a well, tough thing to take yeah. from anybody. But the fact is, uh, like you said, you were, you personally gain nothing from doing that, and you have a good eye. And if someone who has a good eye gives you some advice, you can either you know take it or not. And he chose to take it, and you you had a reputation, I guess, for for that honesty. Looking at at that, and looking at average magicians, when is the best point in the process? Assuming somebody can find a good director, not just a yes man who's going to like everything you do. At what point in a in a process? Would you recommend someone start looking for that? Because most magicians probably wouldn't even think about having a director look at their act. Well, this is this is sort of uh, what you're asking, and you know, sort of tangential. But you need useful feedback from the very beginning. That's why, even though I I love magic, was very interested in magic in junior high, high school, and college. My interest never went anywhere because I was in Montana, where it's not quite true to say there are no magicians there, but it's close enough to the truth that there are no magicians there. And um, although some geniuses, like uh, maybe Jerry Andrus and others, can learn to do magic completely on their own, uh, divorced from you know any interaction with other magicians. I'm not one of those geniuses and you know very few of us are. So you need someone a to learn with. you need people who are at about your level and to learn with them. and you also need someone who is above your level to teach you and guide you. You need some sort of mentor. That's just super important, I think, for almost anybody. Um, and so I didn't have that until like I said after grad school and in Seattle. And as far as like when you need a director, well, that sort of depends on what your goals are. Because many magicians, and here's the thing, when we use the word magicians, 90% of the time, what we mean is hobbyists. 
the word magician, it means hobbyist in most contexts when, when, when we're using it. So if you're just someone who does magic socially and casually for friends and family, you know, you don't need a director, but you need someone who is smart, whose eye, whose opinion you trust to give you feedback when you're working on something. And just even if it's just to tell you you're flashing. You know, they don't even have to give you feedback on, you know, your premise or your script or, or, or any highfalutin ideas like that. Or they can give you guidance about, you know, there's a better handling of that trick. Someone's got a, a better version they might want, want to look at. So that's kind of good feedback and good, um, you know, a good companionship that any magician can use. But as far as the director goes, I don't know that you necessarily need one unless you're doing it, you know, semi-professionally or theatrically, or you're doing a, a, you're renting a theater and doing stage show, or you're doing actual gigs, or you're performing at the castle, or, you know, uh, uh, you know, wanting to work, work cruise ships and such. That's when you know, you need uh, you need a director when you're starting to make that transition. That's an interesting thought because yes, if you're somewhere around the time you charge money, uh, either to see you or yeah. you charge someone uh, yeah. money to perform, that's yeah. when you've crossed a mystical barrier, probably, huh? And you need somebody to yeah. say that's good, that's not. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's a good distinction. The way this has been said many ways by many people but i like the way harry anderson said it if you're going to get a bunch of people to sit in chairs and face the same direction you better make it worth their time mm -hmm. yeah. and if you and if you're charging money for it then you really have an obligation to deliver something uh worthwhile and so my you, you talked about how you know i don't get i don't get anything out of giving advice to someone but i want everyone to be as good as they can possibly be and more than that, when somebody's doing a trick, I don't want them to do the trick as, as well as they can do it. I want them to do it better than anybody has ever done it. You know, that's what I want to see. Every time I see a magician, whether it's just another guy in the close-up room at the castle, or if I buy a ticket for an off-Broadway magic show, I want it to be great. I don't want it to be terrible and be, to be able to go, oh, that's not terrific. You know, I can do better than that. That's not what I want. That's what happens a lot but it's never what I'm, I'm hoping for when I buy that ticket. What's the biggest misconception you think that uh, magicians have about working with a director? Because it does not come, uh, for all of us, I think that would be a, uh, it would be a scary thing. Uh, there's uh, to trust somebody to look at your stuff and give you feedback in a way that may be challenging or cause you to rock back on your heels a little bit and uh, reconsider uh, whether you've made the right career choice at all. Uh, that's essential. So what's the biggest mis misconception? Uh, my guess is the biggest misconception is the areas of your show that a director can be useful to or around. That was an awkward sentence, but you get the idea. <laughs> the thing is, is I think when magicians think about working with a director, they think about, well, he's going to help me clarify my script or um, work with me on the blocking and, you know, when, it, when I need to cross and things like that. But, but uh, directors or a good director, you know, should work with you on things that you might not think about, which are what is the show about? What, you know, props are you, are you using? Things like your blocking, the lighting, 
the music, audience interaction, making making every trick look different. By that, I mean, create a different, ideally, you create a slightly different stage picture for each trick and each trick has a different texture and feeling to it. Directors can help you connect certain thematic things that are in your show and that can help uh, and a director can help you string those together to make your show look more cohesive. Uh, these are things that I think some magicians don't realize directors can can help you with. You, you know, we had um, Michael Close on recently, and just as sort of a throwaway, he was talking about uh, not really directing Penn and Teller, but their ability to take feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and he said what he loved about working with them was you know, he'd say uh, over on this side of the house, uh, that's not reading at all. And they would never object to what he was saying. They would say, how do we solve that? And he said, a lot of times with magicians, when you say you have an issue here, they'll just fight you on it. And yeah. and there's at that point, it's like, why do I even bother helping you? Yeah, yeah. this is this is maybe going to be the most useful thing I'm, I'm going to say during this this podcast. And that is um, if you're getting feedback from someone and, and if it's someone you trust and not just some rando coming up to you after a show, but even when it is a rando coming after coming up to you after a show, this might be true. And that is if someone gives you advice about a certain aspect of your show, very, very, very often they're identifying an actual problem in the show, but almost never is their suggested solution the correct solution. You know, they'll come and say, look, when you say this, it's confusing or it's misleading. Here's what you should say. Their suggested line probably isn't the right line, but they're probably pointing out a real problem. I want to just switch topics a little tiny, but it doesn't have to do with directing, but it has to do with scripting. Uh, When you were here, doing a lecture for Sunday Night Magic, uh, which was a great lecture, really fun. The thing that really stuck in my brain was the, uh, I suppose you call it a book test with the Little House on the Prairie book, which seemed more complicated than it was. But the reason that it worked so well was I thought the level of scripting that you went into on that made that absolutely work. And I'm not sure most magicians would be willing to take time to do that what what is your process for scripting something like that well yeah i'll talk about that specifically because a lot of what i did there applies to other you know kinds of routines that's kind of interesting because that what that is that's just a old timey slate routine where uh, you force something like a word and the word appears on the slates and you know slate tricks go back to the 1880s or even earlier I was reading one of Juan Tamriz's books and he had a slate routine where he has three magazines and someone picks a magazine and someone picks a page and, and, a, and a picture from the page and that picture, you know, a chalk drawing of that picture appears on the slate. And normally I would have gone right past that and not given it a second thought in a million years, you know, a slate routine. I mean, it's been over a century since slates have been in common use. So why would you possibly want to do a trick with one? But Tamari said something to the effect of that is one of the very, very strongest tricks that he does in his stage act. And that really stopped me. And I thought if Tamari says it's one of the strongest tricks that he does, there's something there. So I bought a set of slates and they sat on my shelf for three or four years um, while I tried to figure out what to do with them. Because the first thing you have to do is you have to justify the use of the slates. Like I said, they haven't been in you know common use for 
a century, maybe longer. Uh, why do you have slates? Why, why are you using slates? That is just dumb. And so after, like I said, several years, I thought, oh, you know what? They can be a prop from like a movie or TV show. And I thought, what movie or TV show? And I thought, well, you know, when I was a kid, uh, the TV show Little House on the Prairie was popular. So these are a prop from Little House on the Prairie. I was like, why would I have a prop from Little House on the Prairie? And, I, and then I remembered uh, Melissa Sue Anderson, who played Mary Ingalls. You know, I was like the perfect target age for her. I mean, I, th I think she was like 14 and I was 14 and she was a, you know, you know, beautiful blonde girl. I'd, I had bigger celebrity crushes than her, but she was one of my many little celebrity crushes, but it's, it was plausible. I thought, okay, I'll invent this story that I had a crush on her. And so I bought this prop from the show. And so all the scripting came around that story. Here's a story about, I have these slates. Why do I have them? Why am I showing them to you? Because there's this weird supernatural thing connected to these slates that I don't fully understand, but I want to show you what I'm talking about. And so all the scripting came out of that story that I was telling. Uh, I guess that's the, the, the not so short, short answer to your question. But how great is that? Is that you, uh, you didn't just say, and I got this uh, pair of slates here. Yeah. Uh, but you gave a, a, a justification for it. Why do, why? Since we've, that, how great is that? And for you to then in, to take it one step further. Well, what if I, what if I, oh, there it is. Okay. Now it's, now I have something I can work with. That's, yeah. uh, to me, that's brilliant. And it's also realistic as opposed to, I have this square circle that I got in China when I was traveling across the Great Wall, it's something that would reasonably be there, which I think is half the battle is you don't want people thinking, why? Why is he? What is what? Why? And what and what is that? Exactly. So on a more global note, since mm -hmm. you have opinions, and I love listening to them. What do you think is is the worst thing magicians are doing right now? Well, the, the bad news is, is I'm not sure I have an answer to that question. Mm. But give me a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll find something, which reminds me, I was giving someone, uh, uh, this was a friend, you know, we, we talked about, you know, giving unsolicited advice. And I realized, you know, that the problems in other people's acts aren't my problem. And so I, I don't give unsolicited advice uh, uh, anymore. And even if someone asked me for feedback, I almost never do. If it's not someone I know, and I don't know why they're asking, because often when people ask for feedback, they're not looking for feedback. They're just looking for praise. And so I almost never, never get feedback, but my friends, of course, you know, I'll, uh, I'll give uh, my friends feedback. And I was talking to a friend and there was another friend listening to me. I said, okay, here's the problem. And I told him what was wrong with, with the act. And he said, look, John, here's the deal. You gotta say one nice thing, then one bad thing. And then one nice thing. It's like a shit sandwich. You gotta give him a shit sandwich. I said, <laughs> I said, I only give Adkins shit sandwiches. <laughs> Here's my big problem in life is that for much of my life, I've believed in the golden rule, uh, which is uh, do unto others as you would have others do unto, unto you. And so I have treated people the way I want to be treated. And that's wrong because most people don't want to be treated the way I want to be treated. I don't need you to give me a compliment before you give me, you know, you know, some hard news or some uh, a hard truth. I don't need that. I don't want that. And if I don't know you, I don't want you to act like you're my friend. I want you to be polite. 
I want you to be businesslike. I want you to be pleasant. But if you're not my friend, don't act like your friend. And I'm not going to act like I'm your friend if I'm not your friend. And so, uh, which is not the way many people, uh, you know, operate. And so that's why I've gotten this, you know, reputation of being so harsh is because I don't mind being harsh, harsh with me. You know, I, I, I'm going to jump back to something, John, because it's something that you have done for me over the years. And, and Mr. Lovick kind of pointed it out. On show days, uh, Mr. Gaspard and I have a rule that he can't say anything to me if I'm performing that day that would be uh, in any way, shape or form, shake my confidence. It's all got to be today's your day, baby. They're going to love you, that kind of stuff. And I should say that our history, John, is um, I was in meetings and events for 30 years, corporate meetings and events, and I would hire Jim as an MC and a performer. And so anytime as the stage manager, when I was sending him out, I was often sending him out without the right amount of rehearsal because they didn't have it, without the right amount of scripting because things changed. I was Mm -hmm. sending him into a a very scary environment. And so this rule, uh, I may have broken it a couple of times, but it was very helpful that on a show day, you know, no tongue on show day as as we've learned from my favorite year. And you, and you, John said after a show, Hey, it was great. After the show, I don't want someone to rip it apart and tell me, Hey, it sucks here and it's bad there and you could be funnier there. I want somebody to say, hey, I enjoyed that. You, you, I enjoy you. And then after that, the next day, if they want to say, hey, I have a couple of thoughts. They're yours if you want them. That's a whole different deal. And, and it's something I think that people uh, who are in our business probably get. Um, on some level, but then, you know, it's something that we should reinforce, which is what I'm trying to do, because yeah. mm-hmm. I think it is important after the fact to just be supportive yeah. and come back later. Do you have time for a couple more questions? I do indeed. All for right. You, I, for you, I have time. Because we're friends. Is there anything, is there one thing in magic you'd like to see go away? Oh, you know what? Yeah. Stock lines, stock lines. And uh, I, I thought for a long time, uh, that my problem with stock lines was that they're not original. And that's the, the lesser of the two problems I have with stock lines uh, is that they're not original. The bigger problem, and it took me a long time to realize this, is that they're not specific. They're generic. And the, the, the key to art, whether it's painting or script writing or dance or music or you know magic or whatever, this, the key to art is specificity. And so like if, if you're writing a play, for example, ideally every line of dialogue could only come out of that character's mouth. If you were to give that line of dialogue to another character, it, it, it should seem wrong if you're doing your job right. And that's the thing about stock lines is even if you don't know it's a stock line, even if you ne- never heard it before, you can smell it a mile away, you know, yeah. that it's generic and anybody could say that. That's that's my biggest problem with stock lines is that they're generic. If if it doesn't illuminate you or your act or your trick, it you know it's serving no no purpose. And there again, a uh, a nice little shout out for not using stock lines. Yeah, uh, so true. Obviously, uh, we're against them. I, uh, I I completely agree with that. This the thing that I there are many takeaways. Many takeaways from yep. uh, I have a whole list. Yeah. Uh, but the biggest one for me is the specificity idea. Yep. That there, that there is uh, the, the more, I think of that line from 
Mr. Saturday Night, where he has been forever and a day turning to an old woman and says, who, who, who does your makeup, the circus? And then at the end of the, the movie, he says, who does your makeup, Ringling Brothers? And he says to his brother, you see what I did there? I, I made it more specific. It's funnier when it's yep. more specific. And boy, uh, it's good to be reminded of that because you can forget it pretty quickly. Thank you, John Lovick, for reminding us of that. The other thing that I really liked that he said was, uh, don't do it how I did it and uh, sort of do it exactly the way I did it. <laughs> terrific. Just absolutely terrific. Don't do it the way I did it, but do it exactly the way I did it. And, and once he talks you through it, you go, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, of course it made perfect right. sense. Yeah, it makes that perfect way. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. The only thing I the only thing I really differed on him uh, about was how to uh, give people constructive criticism that they can hear because I do think that as a performer, if even if it's a good friend who uh, comes up after a show and starts giving me notes that are meant to be helpful and I'm you know great that's terrific but that's there's a moment and that's not the moment for me I, yeah. as a performer I don't want it at that time. If you want to talk to me about, hey, I had this thought or this could uh, blah, blah, call me the next day and say, love the yeah. show. Yeah. Here's what I, you know, here's, you want some ideas? Absolutely, I do at that point. But yeah. you're right when you say too many of us go into defensive postures yeah. uh, the yeah. minute somebody tries to tell you how you could be better, which, uh, you know, is silly, obviously, but it's the way it is. It's human nature. Yeah. Anyway, it was really great to chat with John Lovick. And if you want to see a little more of him, he did stick around uh, and talk about his time on Penn and Teller Fool Us. Uh, he explained his process of putting together his act for that show and the even tougher process of trying to become friends uh, with Penn. Uh, that's a special bonus video. So just go to the Behind the Page Eli Marks podcast YouTube page and you can uh, you'll see uh, you'll see that there. And there's a link for that in the show notes. You're also going to find, uh, we have a link to John Lovick performing on Penn & Teller. So not only does he talk about it, but Jim, you can see him do it. Uh, and we also have a really early video of John performing uh, a little character called Reparation. I'd like to see all of it. Hey, uh, let's not forget that we have a chapter of the bullet catch to get through. If I'm correct, it's chapter 19. And I think it would be helpful, well, to me, but probably to the listeners as well, to just bring us up to date here. Yeah, because I doubt you remember from what, what we talked about two weeks ago and what you recorded low those many years ago. Anyway, in Chapter 18, Eli learned that Sylvia Washburn was, in fact, dead. He and Trish were interrogated separately by the police. Uh, he drives it home and they kind of come to the conclusion that it looks like someone's trying to frame her. And then he has the problem of how to put together a new method for the bullet catch. And that takes us right into chapter 19. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 19. Now I know how the actors playing Amos and Andy must have felt. Any chance you could confine your references to those less than 75 years old? Lauren said as she continued to apply the dark makeup to my face. You recognize the reference enough to criticize it, I countered, shutting my eyes while she worked on my eyelids. I'm a makeup person. Of course I get an Amos and Andy reference. You are a white man. I'm applying makeup to give you the appearance of an Ecuadorian native. I'm just suggesting you might want to refresh your mental trivia bins. 
Even a lame reference to George Hamilton's tan would have put you closer to the present day. This is a tough room, I muttered. What happened to nice Lauren? Suck it up, she said, twisting my head with her hand and starting to apply makeup behind each of my ears. I'm understaffed, overworked, and have been on this picture far too long. Nice Lauren disappeared about two weeks back. I'm just going to sit here very quietly, I said. Good plan. We had done a quick rehearsal that morning, and I had demonstrated to Walter, the director, the key steps in the approach I had put together for the bullet catch. Like the original version, it required Jake as Terry to pull two natives from the crowd. Under his direction, they would inspect the bullet, sign the bullet, and load the gun. Then one of them would fire the shot, bringing the show to a tragic conclusion. The method I had developed took a sharp left turn from the method Terry Alexander had used and would, I thought, throw off track anyone who had read Clive's article. Satisfied with my plan, Walter had sent me to make up and sent the assistant director in search of an extra to play the other native. I had known what to expect in the makeup process, but the best I could tell, Lauren had sprayed my hair black and was just about finished giving my skin a darker complexion. What can I do for you? Lauren said to someone as they entered the tent. My eyelids were still clamped shut. Walter said to make me up like an Ecuadorian native, a familiar voice said. What, now you're an extra? Lauren asked, twisting my head to the other side, rubbing makeup behind my left ear. Not just an extra, I get to pull the trigger. I opened my eyes and turned my head as much as Lauren would allow. I recognized Stuart, the writer, had taken the chair next to me. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw one of Lauren's assistants throw a makeup bib over him and begin to prepare his blonde hair for spraying. But I'm the shooter, I said, trying to turn my head to look at him. Lauren, who was just as strong as she looked, kept a firm grip on my skull, allowing virtually no movement. Not anymore, Stuart said, not even attempting to subdue his glee. Walter said he thought he'd throw me a bone after all the crap he's given me. I'm really looking forward to this, he added. He actually rubbed his hands together like a silent movie villain. I don't think that's a good idea, I said, once again attempting to turn toward him, but Lauren twisted my head back to her desired position. This effect requires a level of training you don't possess. Oh, nonsense, he said. I'm pointing a fake gun with a fake bullet at a fake actor 20 feet away. What could go wrong? I'm not really comfortable with this, I said as I tried to keep up with Walter. He was following the cameraman around the set as they blocked out the shot. The cameraman wasn't so much holding the camera as he was wearing it. A harness encased his chest like a vest, and a metal arm on a pivot jutted from the harness with the camera securely clamped to the metal arm. A monitor below the camera allowed him to see the shot as he glided through the set with Walter right on his heels. If you're uncomfortable, talk to wardrobe. They'll get you a looser serape. Although, tell them I love that color on you. No, not my costume. I'm not comfortable with Stuart firing the gun in this scene. Oh, Eli, there's nothing to it. You showed me the process yourself. 
A monkey could fire the gun at that point and no one will get hurt. Unless he wants someone to get hurt. Walter stopped looking at the image on the camera's monitor and looked up at me. Are we still talking about the monkey? No, we're talking about Stuart. He thought about this for a moment and then shook his head. Stuart can't hurt anybody. He's just the writer. I wasn't so sure about that. Even at our first meeting, Stuart had exhibited a thinly suppressed rage at what had been done to his screenplay and at the casting of Jake in the role of Terry Alexander. I also remembered his reaction when we both separately came across Jake and Noel necking in the woods. His face had looked nearly demonic, staring daggers at Jake, and there had been a gleam in Stuart's eye when I left him in the makeup tent that had made me seriously uneasy. Walter and the cameraman had continued on their rehearsal path and were now on the other side of the large dirt clearing that would act as the staging ground for this scene. I love a martini, a voice said behind me. I turned to see Arnold, the producer, walking toward me, smiling an uncharacteristically large grin. Also uncharacteristic was his wardrobe. Instead of his usual freshly pressed Hawaiian shirt and very expensive off-white slacks, he was dressed not unlike myself, although about 20% better. Outfitted like an Ecuadorian townsperson, he had the addition of an impressively large hat and a slightly tarnished badge, which was displayed prominently on his equally prominent chest. Completing the look were a pair of mirrored sunglasses. Thrown as I was by his wardrobe, I was still trying to figure out why he was talking about martinis. Bit early in the day for a martini, isn't it? Not the drink, my friend, the shot! He threw an arm over my shoulder and began to walk me along the perimeter of the set. On a movie shoot, the last shot of the day is called the martini. Why, you ask? I hadn't, but that wasn't an issue with Arnold. It's called the martini because the next shot is out of a glass at the bar. He laughed a deep and unsettling laugh. And in this divine instance, not only is this the last shot of the day... It's the last shot of the production. After this, it's a wrap, and not a moment too soon, if you ask me. Once again, I hadn't, but again, that didn't matter to Arnold. I did have a question, though, so I interjected it before he had time to start another soliloquy. So you're an extra today? I asked. Sort of pulling a cameo, like Hitchcock? He shook his head and laughed. I'm not just any old extra. I asked Walter if I could play the sheriff in this scene. You see, it'll be my revolver that Terry Alexander borrows for his trick. His last trick, he added ominously. Your revolver? Your personal revolver? Arnold laughed. Oh, what did it were? But no, it's coming from props. He continued to walk and to talk. I gotta tell you, it will be a great relief to finally get this monster in the can. I've produced some pain-in-the-ass productions in the past, but this has been a friggin' nightmare. You know, the mystery is ruined, right? Right down the toilet. He obviously still hadn't put it together that my uncle was the primary cause for this, and I felt no need to disabuse him of that notion at this late date. Yes, it's a shame, I agreed. So what will that do to the marketing of the film? What approach will you take? I have some ideas I've been playing with, he said, his voice dropping in volume, 
bringing it almost down to the level of an average speaker. I think depending on how things go today, we'll kick a few of them up the flagpole and see who salutes. And how do you expect things to go today? He took off his sunglasses and squinted up at the sun, then turned and surveyed the entire set before turning back to me. I expect things to go swimmingly, he said, smiling as he put his sunglasses back on. Just swimmingly. While they continued to tweak the camera positions, I paced around the set, running the steps of the bullet catch method through my mind again and again, looking for any flaws in the plan. Even though a blank cartridge was being used, it could still cause damage. Actors had died when a gun firing a blank was shot too close to them, and at least one magician was injured when a joker stuffed some lead pellets down the barrel of a rifle containing a blank cartridge. The force of the explosion was enough to propel the pellets at the magician, causing injury but not death. And then there was also the issue of someone substituting a real bullet for the blank. My plan made this impossible, I thought, but I had been wrong before. I kept running each step in the trick through my mind, searching for any holes in my plan. I was so preoccupied with my thoughts, I almost collided with Noel. She was just as at fault as I was as she was looking into her iPhone as she walked. Oh, sorry about that, I said as I neatly sidestepped past her. No problem, she answered vacantly, continuing to look intently at her phone. She stopped and ran a finger across the screen repeatedly, then held the phone up at arm's length from her face. She twisted her expression into a grimace, looking not unlike Munch's famous painting of the scream, if that painting subject had been blonde in 22. The phone's camera clicked, and she altered the expression again, snapping another photo, and then another. She then looked at the phone's screen, quickly swiping through these most recent photos. As I looked at her, I remembered Jake's story about her heartbroken roommate and his claim that Noelle had a temper of legendary proportions. Watching her innocently flipping through photos on her phone, I was still having trouble believing him. I was also having trouble figuring out what she was doing. So, I said, trying to find the best way to frame my question, what are you up to? Oh, just working on my scream face, she said matter-of-factly. Your scream face? Yeah, I scream at the end of the scene, after Jake gets shot. I wasn't thrilled with the way she had phrased that. You mean at the end of the scene where the character of Terry is shot? Yeah. Anyway, when I first started out, I did a horror film. It was a vampire movie where the vampires could come out during the day, and they didn't drink blood, and they weren't actually dead. Interesting twist to the vampire legend, I said. Could you kill him with a wooden stake through the heart? Of course. Well, that's good to know. I mean, that would kill anyone, right? I couldn't help but nod in agreement. That movie was way ahead of its time, she said. Anyway, the director of that movie said I had a great scream vocally, but a terrible scream face. Since then... I've actually dubbed a lot of screams in movies you've probably seen. I'm kind of known for it. We live in a niche world. But now, anytime I have to scream on camera, I always rehearse my scream face 
so it matches the volume and intensity of my actual scream. How do you like this one? She held up the phone, and I looked at the photo of her scream face. Very convincing, I said. Yeah, I like that one, she said as she walked away. I think that's the one I'll go with. The job of turning 100 pale Minnesotans into 100 Venezuelan villagers clearly was a larger task than originally anticipated, so the day dragged on while we waited for the crowd to be properly quaffed and assembled. Walter and the cameraman blocked and reblocked the shot as the sun moved across the sky while Stewart wandered the set, twirling his gun in a poor imitation of Terence Hill's legendary Trinity character. I camped under the shade of one of the sparse trees, surveying the set, and again wondered what I had forgotten or where my bullet-catch method might go wrong. As I mulled, I was surprised to see a familiar mop of unruly hair moving through the crowd, towering ever so slightly above the bored villagers. It was Clive Albans, and he was being led through the set by Donna, the movie's other producer. He spotted me moments after I had spotted him. Eli Marks, what have you done to your hair and your complexion and your wardrobe? He laughed at his questions and turned to Donna, who joined in the laugh a fraction of a second too late to make it convincing. The change in his attitude since the last time we'd met was striking. This was not the Clive I had seen cowering in the festival grounds parking lot. Clive, I'm surprised to see you here, I said. Really surprised. Never say never, that's what I always say. He stood back and gestured to Donna. This lovely lady called yesterday and said, if I may quote, all is forgiven. Donna smiled and nodded. She'd clearly found her calling behind the camera because this woman was no actress. Life is too short to hold grudges, she said, again smiling unconvincingly. Let bygones be bygones, I suggested. That's right, she said. We're so excited about this last day of shooting, we just wanted Clive to be a part of it. Clive wrapped a long arm around her shoulder. We're a family again. I cocked my head, looking from her to Clive. Today of all days, you felt it was important to have a journalist on the set? She visibly winced at the word journalist, but soldiered forward. It's no secret this production has had its share of bumps, she said, choosing her words with care. But I think after today, everyone will walk away with an entirely different feeling about this movie. And we wanted to make sure Clive was here to witness it. She was clenching her teeth so tightly while she talked that for just a fleeting moment, I thought it might be Clive they were planning to shoot at the end of the scene. It's a big day, I said. It will be memorable, she agreed. Historic, Clive added, and then wrapped his arm around Donna and led her away. I heard someone mention the possibility of a martini. Oh, was I very much mistaken? The extras who'd taken the gig with the hope of hanging out with TV star Jake North were disappointed to learn Mr. North was spending the day in his trailer and would not be signing autographs. To keep people away, they had even gone so far as to assign a production assistant to stand outside the motorhome and vet anyone who approached. 
Took several moments for this production assistant to recognize me through my makeup and costume, but once she saw who it was, she allowed me to climb the steps and knock on the aluminum door. It's open, came Jake's voice from inside. Over the past days, Jake's method actor use of Spanish on the set had diminished considerably. I opened the door and walked into the dim trailer. All the blinds were pulled, and the only light came from the sconces on the wall and a small light over the dining room table. Jake sat in a recliner, strumming mournfully on a guitar. He looked every inch the spitting image of Terry Alexander from the grainy video of his final performance. He was gaunt and had dark recesses under his eyes. His skin was ashen and looked paler than any of the Scandinavians who had been made up as extras this morning. You been to makeup already? I asked as I moved some books off one of the chairs and sat down. No. Do they want me? He said, starting to rise up out of the recliner. I held up a hand. Not yet, I said. He stopped in mid-motion and then slumped back into the recliner. How's it going today? I asked, putting as much pep into my intonation as possible. It's going, he said. He strummed the guitar, and I recognized the mournful tune of the man who shot Liberty Valance. How's it going out there? I shrugged. Walter's chasing the sun. He keeps re-blocking the shot. So that's the holdup? No, I said, shaking my head. The extras are too pale. They're working on it. This produced a chuckle from Jake. That's the downside of shooting in Minnesota. We didn't speak for a few moments. I wasn't sure if I should raise the topic of the switch in shooters, but then Jake beat me to it. I hear Stewart's my new trigger man, he said with a wry smile. Yeah, I heard that, I said, trying not to place too much significance on it. What do you think of that? Jake shrugged. At the risk of sounding fatalistic, I'm not sure it matters at this point. He stopped playing and took a moment to tune one of the guitar strings. I mean, if I get shot, the headline in tomorrow's paper is going to be my name, regardless of who pulls the trigger. You're not going to get shot. He stopped tuning the guitar and looked over at me. I can name a dozen magicians who were convinced of that, and they're all dead. You're not going to get shot, I repeated for emphasis, and also because I couldn't think of anything else to say. There was a knock at the door, and a voice said, They're ready for you in makeup, Mr. North. Gracias, Jake said as he got up, leaning the guitar against the couch. Me voy a morir pronto. Although I struggled with the language, I recognized enough Spanish to realize that instead of saying, Thank you, I'll be there soon, Jake had instead said, Thank you, I'm going to die soon. I walked with him to makeup, and on the way I corrected his translation. I also took the opportunity to set him straight on just how safe I had made the bullet catch. After I explained my latest plan, he laughed and slapped me on the back. You just keep thinking, Butch, he said, quoting a classic movie that also ends with the heroes getting shot. That's what you're good at. Oh boy, well, they're getting close to shooting uh, the bullet catch scene, and I can understand why Jake is worried about it. I'd like yeah. to stand there and watch that happen, boy. It's going to be pretty interesting. 
Speaking of interesting, in our next episode, we are going to meet a magician who has touched the lives of more people, uh, magicians and non-magicians alike, than possibly any other magician. Uh, And that's weird to say, because there are some magicians who uh, are enormously popular and have had their own television shows and uh, have been in Vegas forever. But this guy is incredible. And he's a local guy, which is doubly and triply cool for me. And I had the good fortune to actually work with this fella on a piece of theater a while back. And who is it? It's a guy named Dan Witowski. And if you uh, if you don't know him, I'm not surprised. And yet John is absolutely accurate when he says, even if you don't know his name, you have seen his work in one way or another, either around your breakfast table or sitting quietly watching a Super Bowl. Yeah, he's brought magic to the world in a lot of different ways. I believe he said that... He's had over 2 billion premium promotion things in cereal boxes around the world. Uh, I will double check that for our next episode. I believe the number is 2 billion with a B. Yeah. And and speaking of numbers and big numbers, um, I need to place a warning right now for Jim Uh and any other math-addled listeners. We are in episode 219 right now. In order to fit the bullet catch into 24 episodes, our uh, next episode will include two chapters of the bullet catch, not just one. What? It, it will, yes, it'll be episode 220 and we'll have chapter 20 and chapter 21, which I doesn't do. affect the numbering of that episode. But I've got to warn you, Jim, it's going to throw every other episode of this season out of whack. Uh, and didn't I comment at the very beginning of this episode how happy I was that mathematically it was all lining up? It was. And, now- and I didn't, I, you know, it was a show day. I didn't want to say anything to you. So I, it's just, you know, that's episode 220. We're only going to episode 224. It'll be a couple episodes. It won't be that big a deal. I will hold your hand throughout the entire process. Please. So don't worry about it. But it was the only way to do it without adding two extra episodes, which I just didn't want to do because we're on a pretty good schedule here of uh, twice a month. So anyway, you'll deal with that. Not so much next episode, really. The one after that will be the one that uh, uh, episode 221, you're going to be a little freaked out. Because okay. that'll be, yeah. I, anyway. I appreciate the warning because you know me. I just don't like surprises. Anyway, enough of all of that. Check out the show notes for the bonus video of uh, John Lovett talking about his time on Foolus, as well as videos of John performing uh, first as himself and then as Handsome Jack. Check yeah, those, out. those out. Yeah, absolutely. Give him, a, give him a look. He's a fun guy and I'm glad he stopped by. All right, that's it for this episode. Next episode, the numbering will be normal, Jim. It'll be fine. It'll just be you'll be listening to two episodes of the bullet catch and then things get a little wacky the last few episodes of the season, but you're gonna be okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. Implicitly. Goodbye, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks Podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.